Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The president's son will plead guilty to federal criminal charges. The lead starts right now. Hunter Biden strikes a deal on a felony charge and agrees to plead guilty on two misdemeanors. The criminal prosecution the president's son now avoids as Republicans blast the deal, calling it a slap on the wrist. Plus, a trial for Donald Trump set to begin in less than two months as the former president argues his own defense of sorts on national TV. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things, uh, golf shirts, clothing, pants, shoes. There were many things. Many things. And that urgent underwater rescue mission running out of time as the U.S. Coast Guard earlier today estimated only 40 hours left of breathable air for the crew on board the missing Titanic sub. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our law and justice lead. Hunter Biden has struck a deal with federal prosecutors, one that his legal team hopes will keep the president's son out of prison. The Justice Department says Hunter Biden will plead guilty to two misdemeanors for failing to pay his taxes on time. As part of that plea agreement, prosecutors are expected to recommend probation. Separately, CNN has also learned that Hunter Biden reached a deal with the Department of Justice to avoid prosecution on a gun felony charge. These developments come after years of investigation by a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in Delaware, David Weiss, whom President Biden did not replace when he took office because of Weiss's investigation into his son. Earlier this month, U.S. Attorney Weiss wrote to House Republicans that he alone had, quote, been granted ultimate authority over this matter, including responsibility for deciding where, when, and whether to file charges, and for making decisions necessary to preserve the integrity of the prosecution. But none of that stopped Donald Trump or his staunch allies on Capitol Hill from immediately attacking the plea agreement and calling the agreement, among other things, a, quote, slap on the wrist and a, quote, sweetheart deal. The Biden White House has remained mostly silent, putting out a short statement that says, quote, the president and first lady love their son and support him as he continues to rebuild his life, unquote. An echo of what President Biden told me during an interview last October. This is a kid who got, uh, not a kid, he's a grown man. He got uh, hooked on, uh, uh, like many families have had happen, hooked on drugs. Uh, He's overcome that. He's established a new life. President Biden also said in that interview that prosecutors only knew that Hunter had lied about not using drugs when he filled out his gun application because he had admitted it in his memoir. Turns out that when he made my a- application to purchase a-, a gun, what happened was he said, I guess you get asked, I don't guess, you get asked the question, are you on drugs, you use drugs? He said no. And he wrote about saying no in right. his book. CNN's Paula Reed starts off our coverage today with a look at what will happen next before this deal is final. 
President Biden's son, Hunter, reaches an agreement with the Justice Department to resolve a long-running criminal investigation. According to a letter filed Tuesday by federal prosecutors, Hunter will plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges and struck a deal to resolve a separate felony gun charge if he complies with his end of the plea agreement. According to court documents, Biden owed at least $100,000 in federal taxes for 2017 and at least $100,000 for 2018, but did not pay the IRS by the deadline. His lawyers say he eventually paid the tax bill along with fees and penalties. As part of this deal, the Justice Department has agreed to recommend a sentence of probation for the tax charges, according to sources, but the final punishment will be up to the judge. On the gun charge, prosecutors allege he possessed a gun despite his addiction in violation of federal law. Biden's lawyers met with the Justice Department in April, and sources tell CNN that negotiations to resolve the case have ramped up in recent weeks. The deal comes after a broad, years-long investigation that also looked at Hunter Biden's foreign deals and possible money laundering. On Capitol Hill, Republicans have been focused on the president's son and his foreign business dealings. But prosecutors haven't charged him on those claims. On Tuesday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy criticized Hunter's deal. It continues to show the two-tier system in America. If you are the president's leading political opponent, the DOJ tries to literally put you in jail and give you prison time. If you are the president's son, you get a sweetheart deal. Former President Donald Trump posting on Truth Social this morning, Wow, the corrupt Biden DOJ just cleared up hundreds of years of criminal liability by giving Hunter Biden a mere traffic ticket. Our system is broken. The Hunter Biden investigation has been overseen by Trump-appointed U.S. Attorney David Weiss. President Biden has repeatedly defended his son amid the ongoing investigation. He's established a new life. I'm confident that he is what he says and does are consistent with what happens. For example, he wrote a book about his problems and was straightforward about it. I'm proud of him. Moments ago, Biden's lawyer weighed in on the investigation, calling it dogged but fair. Let's take a listen. This was a five-year, very diligent investigation pursued by incredibly professional prosecutors, um, some of whom have been career prosecutors, one of whom at least was appointed by President Trump. They were very diligent, very dogged. Um, this was, you know, it took five years, and it was five years of work that they put in. Um, and even throughout working out the ultimate resolution, I think that they were always driving for what they thought was fair. We're still waiting for a hearing date to be set, for Hunter Biden to be arraigned and plead guilty. We expect that'll happen in the coming weeks. Jake. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Ellie, I'm not a lawyer. I have no idea if this plea case, uh, this plea agreement comports with what would happen for the normal person or, uh, as Republicans are today insinuating, uh, this is a sweetheart deal. Um, you're a former federal prosecutor. Tell us, is this uh, what anybody would get in a similar circumstance or is this a sweetheart deal? 
Well, Jake, I think first of all, nobody's really in position to know that because we don't know the entirety, what the whole universe was of what DOJ had. If they had evidence of more serious crimes and they failed to follow up or they gave Hunter Biden substantially lesser charges, then yes, it's a sweetheart deal. But if this is all they had that was federally criminally chargeable, then no, it's not a sweetheart deal. Now, just to give you one example, a lot of this is a matter of perspective. If we look at the gun charge here, it is exceedingly rare for somebody to be charged with a federal gun crime and given pretrial diversion as Hunter Biden has been given, meaning he doesn't even have to plead guilty. As long as he behaves himself, the charge will go away. On the other hand, the vast majority of federal gun crimes involve somebody who either used the gun in some sort of violent crime or somebody who's a prior convicted felon. So it's rare to even see anyone prosecuted at all under the law that Hunter Biden was prosecuted for, which is possession of a gun by an addict. So it's really largely a product of perspective here. The lawyer for Hunter Biden said the case is now, quote, resolved, but the U.S. attorney Uh, David Weiss, appointed by Trump, says it's ongoing. So clear that up for us. How does that make sense? In any plea deal like this, it is absolutely the understanding between both parties that this is it, that there will not be further charges based on what DOJ knows now. I suspect when we see the paperwork, it will say something to that effect. So why is DOJ saying it's ongoing? Because DOJ always says that until the jury comes back, until the appeal is over, because you never know if something new could pop up. But that's sort of general, very commonplace DOJ language. I do not expect there to be additional charges. All right. I I am just asking this question. There is no evidence that he intends to do this. But could President Biden, if he wanted to, pardon Hunter? Uh, And is there any precedent for such an action? So absolutely. The president, Joe Biden, has authority to pardon Hunter Biden uh, or anyone else, really. Uh, Of course, I don't expect that that's likely to happen, certainly before the election. There is precedent for this, actually, Jake. Bill Clinton famously or infamously pardoned his half-brother, Roger Clinton, on his final day in office. Roger Clinton, years before, had been convicted uh, of a drug offense. And depending on how broadly you want to define family, Donald Trump, on his last day in office, pardoned Charles Kushner, who was the father of Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. So there is precedent for presidents to pardon family members or sort of more distant family members. Yeah. And the U.S. attorney who went after Charles Kushner? Chris Chris Christie. You got it. As you know, Ellie Honig. Thank you so much. Let's get the latest from both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue now. CNN's Manu Raj is on Capitol Hill. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is at the White House. Manu, you just caught up with some senior members uh, of the Republican Party. Uh, What did they have to say? Yeah, House Oversight Chairman James Comer just told me moments ago that that is one of the big questions that he has is what does it mean when the Justice Department's investigation is ongoing? Because he's trying to seek a number of records into this case. Now, he also is indicating that House Republicans plan to call the the U.S. attorney in this case, David Weiss. There's some discussion ongoing about bringing him in to testify. And he also downplayed the notion that this was, in fact, a Trump-backed attorney who was held over into the Biden administration that led this effort into Hunter Biden. Now, when I caught up with Speaker McCarthy earlier today, he tried to compare the Hunter Biden case with the case involving former President Donald Trump, even though the two cases are much different and the facts are different as well. David Weiss is the Trump-appointed attorney. Do you not have confidence in him? No. The, the, the question I have, you want equal justice in America. Mm-hmm. It just seems to me that if you are the leading opponent of the president, 
you're going to get jail time. But if you're the son of the president, you don't get any jail time. See, there's two separate cases. Yeah, I'm, I'm, Why I'm, conflate them? I'm not conflating them. But they're alleging so he you, lied to investigators. That's you, that's you, the you issue. Handle it different. Well, did did Hunter Biden lie about his taxes? Did Hunter lie? Hunter Biden lie about the gun? Well, I don't know. He pleaded guilty to the okay. situation. Well, those cat tax situation. Well, there's no there's no time for him to serve. Remember, this will be no prison time. But they're trying to put President Trump in prison. That's what they're different cases. About. They're different you talk facts. About equal equal justice here, and that's the problem most Americans have. Uh, Speaker McCarthy also said today that he believes the result of this plea deal will, quote, enhance the House GOP investigation into Hunter Biden and to Joe Biden, trying to link the two, trying to link business deals that happen overseas with the White House directly and with Joe Biden's actions as vice president. The question will be, what will happen if the Justice Department does not provide those records that they are now going to be seeking in the aftermath of this plea deal? So, Comer indicating to me moments ago he has not made a decision whether to subpoena for those records, but they do plan to at least potentially call for that U.S. attorney to come testify before one of the House committees, Jake. U.S. attorney appointed by Donald Trump and Joe Biden kept him in office because of the obvious conflict of interest because he was investigating his son. I saw Speaker McCarthy didn't address that part of your question there, Manu. Um, Jeremy, this short statement from the White House today is really emblematic of how President Biden has handled the controversy uh, around Hunter. Yeah, that's right, Jake. President Biden really hasn't sought to distance himself from his son publicly at all. In fact, he's done quite the opposite, really embracing him. We have seen Hunter Biden at the president's side at public events uh, repeatedly, most notably uh, perhaps in April when uh, Hunter Biden joined the president on his trip to Ireland. He was a near constant presence at the president's side. And so it's no surprise when we see this statement from the White House uh, focusing on the fact that the president and the first lady love their son uh, and ultimately saying that other than that, they have no further comment. We know that the president the first lady and talking about this previously, as uh, the president did to you, Jake, talking about uh, the fact that they're proud of their son for overcoming his struggles with addiction. The president recently said in an interview that he didn't believe that his son has done anything wrong. Of course, Hunter Biden in this guilty plea is indeed admitting to wrongdoing. But uh, look, this is not something that ultimately came as a total surprise to the White House. And that's because I'm told that the White House and the president's personal attorney, Bob Bauer, they have kept an open line of communication with Hunter Biden's attorney throughout this process, uh, and that that is a line of communication that's been open on both ends. That being said, a senior Biden advisor told me that, look, uh, they are not directing or advising Hunter Biden's legal team. They were not doing that throughout this process. President Biden, for his part, he is currently on the West Coast in California. He's about to start a meeting with AI experts. This will be the first opportunity for reporters to try and shout questions at the president. We will see if he decides to answer any of those. Jake? All right, Jeremy Diamond and Manu Raju, thanks to both of you. Coming up next, weighing public support for Donald Trump, a new CNN poll taken after his federal indictment, takes a look at how the former president stacks up against his Republican presidential primary rivals. And the underwater experience to see Titanic wreckage. I'm going to talk to a man who took the same trip last year well before this submersible vanished. Plus, CNN on the ground in Ukraine, the life or death plea that Ukrainian pilots are making as they fight on the front lines. In our law and justice lead, an initial trial date has been set in the federal criminal trial of Donald John Trump for allegedly mishandling classified documents. Judge Cannon putting the case on a speedy track with trial date set for mid-August as of now. That's right before the first Republican presidential debate. Meanwhile, Mr. Trump's campaign for president continues unabated. And as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports, his constant comments about the case could very well be used by the prosecution. 
The former president answering questions in his first TV interview since he was indicted on 37 federal charges, including conspiracy and retaining national defense information. Why did you have this very sensitive national security defense documents? In my case, I took it out pretty much in a hurry, but people packed it up and we, we left. And I had clothing in there. I had all sorts of personal items in there, much, much stuff. I have every right to have those boxes. This is purely a presidential records act. This is not a criminal thing. Trump's claims are untrue, and he is being charged criminally, with Florida federal judge Eileen Cannon setting a tentative but swift schedule, asking for pretrial motions to be submitted by the end of next month, with a trial date in Fort Pierce, Florida, set for August 14th. That date, though, will likely change, with Judge Cannon noting the parties could push back the trial start date because of the complexity of the case and issues related to classified information. The Iran attack plan, you remember that? Ready? You were recording. It wasn't a document. Trump denying news reports that he flaunted documents he knew were classified related to Iran in the summer of 2021 at his Bedminster Golf Club in New Jersey, even though, according to the indictment, he was captured in an audio recording admitting that the material was, quote, highly confidential and that it was still classified. Now he's insisting all he ever had were newspaper clippings. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things, uh, golf shirts, clothing, pants, shoes. There were many things. I would say much, much more, not that I know of. There was no document. That was a massive amount of papers and everything else talking about Iran and other things. And it may have been held up or may not, but that was not a document. I didn't have a document per se. There was nothing to declassify. These were newspaper stories, magazine stories, and articles. I'm just saying. All of these statements from Trump post-indictment could be admissible during his upcoming trial, but Trump continues to brush off the broad implications of his criminal charges. So you're not worried about this case? Based on the law, zero. Zero. And Trump is taking fire from many of his former allies, including former Attorney General Bill Barr, who just wrote in an op-ed that if the facts laid out in the indictment are true, Trump's actions amount to, as Bill Barr says, quote, brazen criminal conduct that cannot be justified in any way. Of course, Jake Barr has denounced Trump's actions before, and Bill Barr did end up resigning as Attorney General in late 2020, just weeks before January 6th. Jake? Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Let's bring in uh, CNN's Abby Phillip and CNN political director David Chalian to talk about this. So, Abby, Trump may claim to have zero concerns about this case, but his 2024 rival, Chris Christie, says that Trump's lawyers are no doubt having a very different reaction after watching that interview on Fox. Uh, Take a listen. It appears to me last night, as a former prosecutor, that he he admitted obstruction of justice on the air last night to Brett Baer. I can tell you this, his lawyers this morning are jumping out of whatever window they're near. It, it may not be that they're jumping out of windows, but it is, it is true that he did seem to admit obstruction, didn't he, Abby? And not, not for the first time. I mean, this is not the first time that he has seemingly admitted uh, publicly various elements of the uh, accusations against him. You, you would have to think that if you sign up to be an attorney for former President Trump, that this is what you know you're going to get yourself into, a, a defendant, a client who simply uh, wants to be his own 
lawyer, wants to be his own communications director, is out there talking about a case that is very much active. And and this these charges that he's facing, I mean, carries actual jail time penalties, but Trump still treats it like uh, it's simply a matter of it's of him spinning it to his supporters when what he's really going to be dealing with is a court of law. And in this case, I also think it shows that Trump, uh, he is acknowledging the obstruction part of this, but you hear in what he is saying this sense that uh, these rules or laws that he is accused of simply do not matter all that much. And so he could have done whatever he wanted to do. Unfortunately, that is not going to stack up in a court of law, and his attorneys are going to have to deal with the very real realities of what a, a criminal case like this looks like when it, when it finally goes to trial. So, David, take a look at the new CNN poll, which shows that Trump's support might be softening just a touch following the second indictment. 67% of Republican voters say they have a favorable opinion of Trump now. Now, that's still very, very high, but it's also down from 77% last month. Do you think that this is a potential warning sign for the Trump campaign? Yeah. And you notice there his unfavorables are up uh, nine points uh, since May as well uh, from 18 to 27 percent. Jake, this is one warning sign in the poll. There is also the fact that we've seen an uptick in the number of Republican and Republican leaning independents who now say they won't consider Trump as an option. Uh, That's nearly a quarter of Republican and Republican leaners. Now, that was only at 16 percent in May. And the horse race itself, we've seen his uh, support tick down just a bit. Again, I think he's still clearly uh, the substantial front runner in this race for the nomination. Uh, but there are some bits of softening that we're seeing, whether or not this is the beginning of a trend or just a moment in time immediately following the indictment. Only future polling will tell us that. Abby, we also uh, CNN also asked Republican voters uh, for their current choice, their first choice preference for president. Trump's still dominating the pack, 47 percent. DeSantis says 26 percent. But if you look at the numbers, Trump is down six points while DeSantis is steady uh, and uh, Pence has gone up a few points. Uh, Everybody else is still in single digits. But what's more significant here in your view, the fact that he's up more than 20 points or the fact that his numbers are going in the wrong direction? I think at this moment, the trajectory of this for Trump is probably not heading in the right direction. And and that's mainly because this is not the end of the story in terms of Trump's legal woes. We really could be looking at at least one, maybe two other criminal cases that he's going to have to face, not to mention a trial in the New York case, potentially given the date that Judge Eileen Cannon put on the table, a trial in this federal case. So the the, the news is not going to really get that much better for Trump. A- on the other hand, um, you're not seeing huge moves to the other candidates. It's really, it's really uh, getting spread around pretty evenly. But I will say, when you look closer at the numbers, you know, Ron DeSantis is... Uh, pretty steady in those numbers that you showed. But in our cross tabs, there's really an indication that a lot of Republican voters are very open to him. Uh, His favorable numbers are better than a lot of the other candidates. Fewer Republicans say that they would never consider him. So I think if you are Ron DeSantis's team today, under these circumstances, you're probably feeling pretty good about where things stand pretty early in the Republican nominating process. And David and the, our other law and justice lead, Hunter Biden, the president's son, uh, will plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors in this deal struck with a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney. Republicans have been railing against Hunter for years. 
Do you think this deal will impact the 2024 presidential election in any way? Well, it's certainly in the immediate term, Jake, energizing uh, Republicans because uh, this this story of uh, the so-called weaponization of justice in America or a two-tiered system and all the Hunter Biden related dealings, that's been an animating force inside uh, Republican uh, inside the Republican electorate and Republican leaders have been playing to that. So in the immediate, you saw the reaction from across Capitol Hill and the campaign trail. Uh, all these Republicans uh, are on the same page on this, on using this as a rallying cry. In the long term, Jake, I don't think we know the answer. I'll be surprised if a, a year and a half from now, in November of 2024, we're talking about these Hunter Biden plea deals uh, as the thing that the 2024 presidential election hinges on. Yeah. If they're concerned about a two-tier system of justice, they should learn a little bit more about the kind of justice system that poor people in this country get, because that is really a two-tier system of justice. David Chow and Abby Phillip, thanks so much. Appreciate it. CNN on the ground in Newfoundland, Canada, where that missing Titanic sub started its journey. The freezing and dark underwater conditions that the crew might be up against as the time to rescue them is running out. In our world lead, now less than 37 hours of breathable air estimated. That's all the Coast Guard estimates is left for the five people on board a submersible that disappeared on a voyage to visit the Titanic wreckage at the bottom of the North Atlantic. A massive search and rescue effort continues some 900 miles east of Cape Cod to find that vessel, which launched on Sunday on board, is Stockton Rush. He's the CEO of Ocean Gate. That's the expedition company that operates the submersible. Also are with them are four other passengers. CNN's Miguel Marquez has the latest from Newfoundland where the submersible started its journey. It's a, this is a complex search. A complex search now more complicated by time, which they're running out of. We know there's about, uh, there's about 40 hours of, of breathable air uh, left. Deepwater submersibles and gear converging on St. John's, Newfoundland from the U.S. and Canada. It's the closest land to the search zone. If the Titan can be found, they'll need to bring all resources to bear as quickly as possible. You're dealing with a surface search and a subsurface search, and frankly, that makes it an incredibly complex operation. The five-person submersible started its dive around 9 a.m. Newfoundland time on Sunday. Its last contact with its mothership, the Polar Prince, was an hour and 45 minutes into a dive expected to last just over nine hours. At 6.35 p.m. Newfoundland time on Sunday, the sub was reported missing when it failed to surface at the scheduled time of 6.10 p.m. The vessel has oxygen for five people for about four days, but oxygen is only one critical element. If they are alive and they're in there, they're going to be at almost freezing temperatures, assuming they lost all their power. That's why they can't communicate. It's going to be dark, uh, cold. Um, and oxygen is their, their, their most precious resource. So consuming that, staying calm, sleeping. The vessel and search area, extremely isolated and deep, roughly 460 miles south of St. John's, Newfoundland, and 900 miles east of Boston, and possibly more than two miles below the surface where pressure is nearly 6,000 pounds per square inch. Those on board, adventuring British billionaire Hamish Harding, Pakistani businessman, father and son, Shahzada and Suleiman Dawood, French explorer, Paul Henry Narjolet, and CEO and founder, Stockton Rush, who owns Ocean Gate Expeditions and the missing sub. 
So I want to give you a sense of what's happening here at St. John's Harbor right now. This is the Horizon Arctic. It's the sister ship to the Polar Prince. We believe this ship may be headed out. There's a C-17 plane from the U.S. that has just landed at the airport here. It is going to bring gear down here. A Coast Guard ship from the Canadian Coast Guard just left the harbor here and is on its way to the search zone as well. Just a massive effort and a lot of hope that this one turns out well. Jake? All right, Miguel Marquez uh, in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Mike Reese. Mr. Reese took the same voyage on an Ocean Gate vessel to view the wreckage of the Titanic 11 months ago. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us. We have a photo of you on your own trip to see the wreckage. Can you tell us what your experience was like on, on the Ocean Gate voyage? Yeah, it sounds a little grand. But in every way, it felt like being uh, a Mercury astronaut. You know, this... This wasn't a vacation. It wasn't tourism. It was, it was exploration. And you're getting on a ship that's uh, the best it could be, but they're learning as they go along. And you, you get on with a lot of excitement, but just constant trepidation, constantly knowing this could be the end. And in fact, I was supposed to go with my wife and she tested positive for COVID right before we got on. And so I kissed her goodbye, knowing I, that that might be the last time I'd ever seen her. So nobody walked into this, you know, thinking it was going to be a pleasure cruise. And uh, especially the, the, the experts on vaults, Stockton Rush, you know, they made it as safe as they could make it. They trusted their own lives to it, but they knew uh, it could end this way. Mm-hmm. You did a podcast about your trip, and you described how the ship is controlled by a joystick from a gaming console, much like an Xbox controller. Uh, tell us uh, about the technology and how it works. Yes, I, as a lot of people have, have focused on that as if this is some some jerry-rigged, uh, you know, crazy little jalopy that's been slapped together. But it's one of the most reassuring things about the submarine is how very simple it was. It's a pressure-resistant tube that basically drops to the bottom of the ocean. It took two and a half hours to go kind of straight down, and I actually fell asleep on the on the trip down. That's how kind of relaxing and meditative the whole thing is. And once you reach the ground, the ship is sort of piloted by two things that just look like a fan you would have on your desk. Very simple. And it is controlled by a joystick from a gaming console so that even I was able to steer and navigate the the submarine for a while. And again, these are all to the good. I mean, simplicity, I think, would be having something overly complicated where you're uh, at the mercy of a lot of technology nobody understands. Yeah. Um, You also uh, talked uh, on your podcast about how you had to sign a waiver that warned you at least twice that you could die. Um, I want to show this little clip. CBS News reported on this Ocean Gate submersible uh, and described another time when the ship got lost. Uh, Let's take a listen. There's no GPS underwater. So the surface ship is supposed to guide the sub to the shipwreck by sending text messages. Turn 30 degrees right? Probably 30 degrees. 
But on this dive, communications somehow broke down. The sub never found the wreck. We were lost. We were lost for two and a half hours. So this, this appears to have happened before, at least, uh, getting, getting lost and losing communications. I have to say, I took four different dives with the company, one to the Titanic and three off of New York City. And communication was lost at least briefly every single time. It just seems baked into the system. I don't, I don't blame the submarine as much as I blame deep water, but you would always lose it and come back. And one thing is just the, the safety involved of these kind of things where uh, there was one dive we took as soon as communication went out, we went right back to the service. We were, we had mm. gone to see a new boat just off the shore of New York. And we saw, we saw it for one second and they said, we're going back up. We we shouldn't be down here. So you know, they're not hot dogs. They're not daredevils here. They, they take this very seriously. Well, let's hope this story has a happy ending. Mike Reese, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the war from above. CNN is with Ukraine's air defenses that are part of the new counteroffensive. We're going to share the plea that we're hearing from Ukrainian pilots. That's next. In our world lead today, Russian attacks blanketed Ukraine, targeting major cities in the north and the west of the country, far from the front lines and deep into civilian population centers. In the capital of Kyiv, Iranian-made drones, quote, entered the capital in waves, according to a top Ukrainian official, prompting air raid alarms to go off for more than three hours. CNN's Fred Plaikin speaks with Ukrainian fighter pilots desperate for better air power who say getting American-made F-16s could mean the difference between life or death. Ukrainian Su-25 attack aircraft given the go to assault Russian positions. Against all the odds, Ukraine's Air Force is still very much in the fight, pilot Alexei tells me. Are you helping the ground forces now a lot in the south with the counteroffensive operation? Yep, yep. The mission's extremely dangerous, especially for frontline attack aircraft. Ukraine's aces trying to keep Russian air defenses off balance. We lost uh, many young uh, pilots from our brigade. This uh, taught us uh, to change something. And day by day, we try to fly not the same as yesterday. While Kiev says its counteroffensive is progressing, the battles are tough and gains hard to come by. The biggest threat, Ukraine says, Russian air power. This video purporting to show a Russian combat helicopter taking out a Ukrainian vehicle. The Ukrainians say Russian interceptor aircraft, like the advanced Su-35, often stop their old MiG-29 jets from operating near the front lines. This MiG-29 pilot, who asks us to hide his face and use only his call sign, Juice, tells me. Uh, you can be like a maverick, but with, uh, without a proper uh, hardware, you can't win. Here they go. There goes one. The Ukrainians say they need F-16s from the U.S. and its allies to level the playing field and to fully utilize the air-launched missiles the U.S. has already given them. In between the taxing wartime missions, pilots are already learning the basics of the F-16, hoping they'll be able to fly them in the future. 
We are trying to improve our English skills. Uh, we are flying simulators. Um, so at the moment we have uh, uh, like uh, improvised simulators of F-16 almost on uh, all the bases. The pilots say for them it's a matter of life and death. The attrition rate among combat aviators extremely high. Both Alexei's squadron leader and his wingman killed in combat, he says. When you see the explosion of your colleague by your eyes uh, in real time, it's a shocking picture. Yeah. And uh, the really big uh, difficulty in this situation is uh, how to how to sit in aircraft again, again and again and again. But when the call comes, they say they will be ready and back in the seat, taking the fight to the Russians. So as you can see there, Jake, Ukraine's pilots, like so many in the Ukrainian armed forces, paying a huge price uh, with those massive losses uh, that they are suffering. However, the pilots that we spoke to say they're extremely motivated, especially now that Ukraine's counteroffensive is rolling and they want to see it through and make it a success, Jake. All right, Fred Pleitkin in Kiev. thank you so much. Next, the worst stretch of deadly violence against Israelis in the West Bank in months. Stay with us. Sticking with our world lead, now we go to Israel, where far-right Israeli National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir is calling on Israelis to arm themselves after an outbreak of deadly violence in the West Bank. Today, four Israelis were killed in the settlement of Eli, according to Israeli authorities, just a day after six Palestinians were killed in a raid by Israeli forces, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health, who say more than 90 Palestinians were injured in that attack. CNN's Elliot Gottkind in Jerusalem. Uh, Elliot, tell us more about who might be behind the attack today. Jake, it's the deadliest attack on Israelis since January. According to the IDF, Palestinian gunmen first struck at a restaurant near the West Bank settlement of Eli. They opened fire, killing three civilians before killing a fourth at a nearby gas station. Four Israelis were injured in the attack, which was claimed by the militant group Hamas. An armed civilian shot and killed one of the gunmen. The other stole a car and fled. Israeli security forces set up roadblocks, eventually locating the second Palestinian assailant in the village of Tubas in the northern West Bank. The IDF says that he was killed as he attempted to escape. It also says it recovered two weapons presumed to have been used in the attack. In a video statement, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that all options were open. We will continue to fight terrorism with full force and we will defeat it, he said. Jake? And our thanks to Elliot Gottkine in Jerusalem for that report. Also in our world lead, a suspected corruption probe involving the Paris 2024 Olympic Organizing Committee. That probe is underway in France right now. Today, its offices, along with the company responsible for building the infrastructure for the 2024 Games, were raided by French police. According to France's financial prosecutor's office, this is part of two investigations, which include illegal conflict of interest, embezzlement of public funds, and favoritism and concealment relating to several contracts. The Paris 2024 committee insists it is cooperating with investigators. In the U.S. today, the plea deal Hunter Biden struck with federal prosecutors, court filings cover tax and gun charges. But what about those prior allegations of worse money laundering and foreign lobbying and investigations into Biden family business dealings? Stay with us.
Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the desperate search for a missing Titanic sub, the U.S. Coast Guard acknowledging it needs more equipment. Meanwhile, the vessel running out of breathable air. And France now sending an underwater robot for the deep-sea mission. Plus, a Utah woman accused of killing her husband, poisoning him with a deadly dose of fentanyl, then writing a children's book about dealing with the grief. Now wait until you hear how she's trying to get the courts to obtain money from his business. And leading this hour, the plea deal and the president's son, new federal court filing show, Hunter Biden will plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors and that he struck a deal with federal prosecutors to resolve a felony gun charge. So what about all those allegations of money laundering and foreign lobbying? The Justice Department insists its investigation is ongoing. Our coverage this hour starts with CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Pettis and CNN chief legal analyst Laura Coates. Evan, Hunter Biden will plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors and he struck a deal to resolve this felony gun charge. Walk us through what this all means. Well, the bottom line, Jake, is that uh, his lawyers tell uh, our Paula Reed and Karis Cannell that uh, he that prosecutors are going to recommend that he serve no time, no jail time for pleading guilty to those two misdemeanor counts for failing to file his taxes on time in 2017 and 2018. Now, the gun charge is something that is still outstanding. The uh, his his uh, the plan is, according to the to, to what was filed in court, is for Hunter Biden to enter to enter a, a program, and if he abides by all of the conditions, it will be expunged. It will be wiped away at the end of about 24 months or so. So all of this is subject to approval from a judge, of course, which is going to happen in the next uh, couple of weeks or so. Uh, the bottom line, though, for the all of the other claims that you mentioned, um, those were part of this investigation, and in the end. Prosecutors decided that these were the crimes that they believed that they could try to uh, pursue, and they ended up with this plea agreement with Hunter Biden. Laura, if Hunter Biden is not getting any jail time, what would his punishment look like? What would his probation look like? Normally, probation would entail things like making sure that you submit to urine tests about drug treatment or any kind of compliance they might lay out, never owning a gun, never having one in your possession. Oftentimes, probation cases include an employment requirement as well. Sometimes fines are associated, but also routine meetings with what kind of your probation officer of sorts. So these diversionary programs that Evan actually alluded to also include those similar requirements. But just take a step back, Jake, in this and think about the wide net that was cast here to ensure that this would be viewed apolitically and also looked at in a way that this person was not going to be treated like a different sort of potential target or defendant. And I remind people, unlike what we've been seeing in recent times when a lawyer meets with the DOJ and tries to talk to them about potentially being a target or a defendant, there appeared to be some conversations over some period of time about making sure that the prosecution was aware that their case likely was not as strong as maybe politically people thought it might be. And now we've got this result. Still serious charges to have anyone plead guilty to a crime, let alone tax evasion of sorts. But it's pretty routine to have something, a diversionary program of a crime of this level or even not having a sentence. And as we reported in the previous hour, the person in charge of this plea deal, the prosecutor, is Trump appointed U.S. Attorney David Weiss. When Biden came into office, he did not dismiss him because uh, of the possible conflict of interest. Weiss investigating his son. Weiss says the probe into Hunter Biden is ongoing, but Hunter Biden's lawyer, Evan, says it was his understanding that this was all resolved. So, so which is it? 
Well, uh, both things could be true for at least for the for, for the investigation that um, that the lawyers for Hunter Biden were concerned with. Right. This is the investigation that was looking at everything from money laundering and tax evasion uh, to uh, to uh, foreign lobbying uh, violations. Uh, as far as that's concerned, Jake, we everything indicates that the FBI concluded its investigation last year. Uh, so that language that was included in the press release from uh, the U.S. attorney in Delaware is pro forma, right? They, they, they included all of this on, until a judge signs off on the deal. It is ongoing. However, it doesn't, it doesn't foreclose on the possibility that there are other parts uh, of the FBI that might be looking at other things that are not connected to these allegations. Laura Trump reacted to this plea deal on Truth Social saying, quote, Wow, the corrupt Biden DOJ just cleared up hundreds of years of criminal liability by giving Hunter Biden a mere traffic ticket. Our system is broken, unquote. Again, he is the one who appointed the U.S. attorney who oversaw this investigation. Um, that's something that you can't even get, like Speaker McCarthy, Manu asked him about it. He wouldn't even acknowledge it. David Weiss was appointed by Trump. Um, doesn't that undermine the idea that, that this is the, the corrupt Biden Justice Department with two tiers of justice, one for Democrats, one for Republicans. Well, of course it does. It kind of reminds us when there was the election of 2020 prior to that, and there were campaign ads that Trump's camp ran that talked about cities in peril or danger or any sort of um, police, pro police brutality related protests and beyond. And the headline was, this is Biden's America as president of the United States, when in fact it was another president who was actually in the Oval Office named Trump. And so this talking point ought not to carry much weight for the precise reason you indicated. This was somebody who was appointed with an eye towards this very notion, the idea of not having somebody who could be perceived, Jake, as somebody who was in the pocket of or under the wing of the president of the United States. That's the whole essence of this. But you see a very connective tissue here, don't you, between a special counsel that is Jack Smith and one that he actually appointed. If the theme is weaponization, it's convenient only to focus on how it relates to him, not actually what the reality would be. Laura Coates and Evan Pettis, thank you so much to both of you. Minutes ago, President Biden made his first on-camera comments about his son's plea deal. Let's bring in CNN's Priscilla Alvarez traveling with President Biden in California. Priscilla, tell us more. What did he have to say? Well, President Biden maintained the position he has from the beginning, that he trusts his son and he's proud of him. Now, his first public comments on this came as he was kicking off an AI meeting with experts and researchers. And he was asked by our colleague, Jasmine Wright, whether he had spoken to his son. Take a listen. I'm very proud of my son. Now, President Biden has kept Hunter Biden close over the course of his presidency. He has been a presence at events at the White House and was also a visible and constant presence when President Biden visited Ireland. Now, earlier this year, as this case was ongoing, President Biden kept that similar tone, saying that he stood behind his son, that he supported him and he trusted him. But of course, Jake, this is going to be part of the campaign going into 2024. As we saw throughout the course of the day today, Republicans seizing on this case and this plea deal. So this will be another political uh, part of the conversation as the president continues his visit here in California. He is expected to attend two fundraisers later this afternoon. And so we'll be looking out to see if he talks more about this case. Jake.
All right, Priscilla Alvarez in San Francisco, thank you so much. Let's turn now to Van Jones, who served in the Obama administration, and to Scott Jennings, who was a special assistant to President George W. Bush. Scott, uh, you hear these Republicans alleging weaponization of the Justice Department by Biden or the Attorney General. We should note, again, this plea was negotiated by uh, a U.S. attorney who was appointed by Trump, and he told House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan earlier this month in a letter that he himself had, quote, been granted ultimate authority over this matter, including responsibility for deciding where, when, and whether to file charges and for making decisions necessary to preserve the integrity of the prosecution, unquote. So help me out. Help me understand why should I be looking at this plea deal and think that there's something political at play? Well, Republicans believe this is only part of the Hunter Biden story, that there's a whole other side to Hunter Biden's dealings with foreign oligarchs and millions of dollars flowing into Biden-related LLCs, Biden family-related LLCs. And so I guess I guess the explanation, Jake, is you got two different issues. Hunter's personal problems, which, you know, he's obviously a, a drug addict who lied on a form to get a gun that was thrown in a dumpster near a school by his girlfriend. I mean, that's his personal life. But then you've got this whole business side of it going on that Republicans are keenly interested in because they think it it's in it, it is evidence of influence of you know foreign entities on the biden family so i i would expect that's what house republicans are going to continue to follow up on van do you see the plea deal as as um wrapping up the hunter biden scandal for president biden or not as you just heard from scott well um you know the there's a right wing media machine that generates all kinds of commentary about hunter biden uh, true, false, or otherwise, and that's just not going to stop. Um, no matter what happens, you're going to have that continuing because there's a need on the part of the president's opponents to try to dirty up his family. Uh, they, this whole idea that you have a Biden crime family, like this is now those of us who know Joe Biden and know the Bidens, it sounds ridiculous, but you have to understand there's a whole part of the country that they've heard that so many times. This fits inside of that narrative. I will say, you know, just to be honest, it doesn't look good. Uh, if you're Donald Trump and you're getting hauled into court all the time and catching cases, it doesn't look good for the Bidens for uh, you know, one of their family members to be getting in trouble. We can, just, we can be honest, it doesn't look good, but it is not as bad uh, as you're looking at what's coming out now as what the right wing media has been ginning people up for. Uh, and uh, that's just the reality. Scott, um, let's talk about Donald Trump, because the initial hearing in this federal criminal trial against him will be taking place in August, the same month as the first debate, at least as of now. Right now, a new CNN poll shows Republicans are still with Mr. Trump. 25% of Republican voters approve of the decision to indict him in the classified uh, documents uh, case. Um, that, that's good news for him. Um, only 25% approve of the decision. Um, but how likely is it that any of this is going to change as we get deeper into the campaign season and the court case begins perhaps in August and then you may even have other indictments from, uh, on other charges? Yeah, I, there was some evidence in our polling that there was a bit of a softening on Trump uh, from the last survey that we took. So it did appear that at least a few people took notice of, of what happened in the indictment. I mean, honestly, I think as this wears on and he continues to talk about it, he's going to be more and more screwed. I mean, if you look at the video of the of the interview he did with Brett Bayer, he admitted he admitted to what's in the indictment. He admitted to holding on to the documents. I mean, he he's out there publicly admitting to what is alleged in the indictment, which is a federal crime. And so I would think as we get to the debates, as you mentioned, and, you know, on and into the campaign, the other candidates would be able to make this case that 
We can't go through a campaign with a Republican standard bearer who's carrying around these federal indictments, who's publicly basically admitted to committing the crimes and may have more crimes coming down the pike. So I think there's a little evidence of softening now, not much, but a little and more possibly to come as the as the year wears on. And Van, uh, in that interview that Trump did on Fox last night, uh, he also again continued to lie about the 2020 election. Take a listen. What, what do you say to that female independent suburban voter who feels that way to win her back? First of all, I won in 2020 by a lot. OK, you let's know, get that straight. I won in 2020. You know, that this, and if you look at all of the tapes, if the you look at every the ballots were fake ballots. You had this asked, was a very rigged. Are you election. going to go? This is how you're going to tell that independent suburban no, woman no, voter. No, we're, to vote we're for off you. to winning an election and I think we're winning very well. So, I mean, once again. He did not win in 2020, and everything he talks about is a lie. Um, but, I mean, is this exactly the message that Democrats, Van, uh, are hoping Trump is going to keep focusing on? Well, I, I mean, I, I hope he gets some help. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it's just sad. He's just like, you know, this, this you know, rambling on about the same things that everybody knows isn't true. And when you can't get somebody at Fox— uh, to give you a pass on it, it lets you know that it doesn't make a lot a lot of sense. Um, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but I suspect that there are some people who are going to believe him on that stuff and other people who are going to uh, look at reality. I don't think he's gaining much ground. Uh, Scott showed there's some softening. Uh, he's still you know 20 points ahead of, of any uh, rival in the Republican Party. But you see, he took a 10-point hit uh, with this most recent uh, 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 indictment and arraignment. Uh, there are more indictments and arraignments to come, and at some point, uh, maybe things get better. But, uh, I mean, you know, he just won't stop honking that same little horn, jumped up and down that same little pogo stick, and he's not going anywhere with it. And, and Scott, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who right now is in second place in many polls in the Republican race, uh, is taking more veiled swipes at Trump. Um, uh, take a look. I think that, you know, I'm more li- likely to win the election against Joe Biden. And I think I'm more likely to actually get this stuff done. I mean, you know, there have been promises made about draining the swamp, building the wall, doing all these things. You know, none of that came to fruition. What do you make of that argument, Scott? Well, I think he's right. Uh, I mean, Trump was all over the place on policy. If it hadn't been for Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan for much of his presidency, he would have gotten nothing done. And those are people he now routinely attacked. So I think DeSantis is right on the policy argument uh, and he's right to make it. And I also think he's looking at the same polls we are that show Trump with a favorability rating nationally of like 31 or 32 and also looking at Biden at 31 or 32. He knows this election, if it comes down to those two, is going to be determined by the double disapprover, the people who hate both Biden and Trump. And there's a lot of them. And what we've seen in 2020 and what we're seeing in polling now is that those double disapprovers are likely to default against Trump not for him. And I think DeSantis is right to bring that up and make the electability argument to his fellow Republicans. And Van, as uh, Scott rightly notes, uh, Biden in our new poll, his favorability uh, rating has dropped to 32 percent. That's down from last month's already super low, 35 percent. At what point should Democrats start panicking about this? I think a lot of Democrats are uh, behind the closed door. Uh, There's a lot of uh, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth uh, but people are afraid to talk about it publicly, mainly because the alternative is not clear and because Joe Biden just keeps uh, flummoxing, flummoxing people. Uh, he's always underestimated and then he always overperforms. 
And so I think, you know, we've had over and over again, he wasn't supposed to get the nomination. Uh, he wasn't supposed to win by as much as he won by. Uh, you know, he was going to lose the midterms. He wasn't going to get anything done. And so because Joe Biden just keeps outperforming and overperforming all the people who are concerned about him, it's really hard for, for people to, to make the argument publicly that it's time for him to go. Uh, and uh, so you know, we, we are where we are. But, the, but those poll numbers are not good. Van and Scott, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Good to see you. Coming up more on Donald Trump's federal criminal case, what we're learning about his trial, which is now set to start in less than two months, plus the accusations of human trafficking and rape leading to charges today against a controversial online influencer and his brother. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice League, Donald Trump continues to campaign for a return trip to the White House despite separate state and federal criminal indictments. But as Mr. Trump gives interviews and speaks publicly about his growing legal troubles, experts say he is undermining his own defense. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Palance. Caitlin, federal judge Eileen Cannon has set the initial trial date in the classified documents case for mid-August. What are you learning about that? Well, Jake, we do have that order from the judge today, one of the first ones from Judge Eileen Cannon, now that she's going to be in charge of this case as it heads to trial. That trial date for mid-August that she's setting, that's a starting point, essentially. It is a trial date, and a trial could happen as soon as August. We know the Justice Department wants to get to trial fast and has already made sure that they're not kicking up any dust uh, that could could throw things off track. But right now, there are a lot of things that could come up between now and the trial that the judge even said in her order when she set that date. You know, there could be more complicated issues in this case that will need a delay. There are also the classified documents issues around this case that could be prompting a delay. But there is going to be a lot of eyes on everything that happens in this court record leading up to trial. Uh, And some of that is what will be presented at the trial. Uh, We already know just from yesterday, Donald Trump is out there publicly potentially previewing what his defense is or at least offering his own side of the story uh, when it comes to what happened after the Justice Department sent him his sent him his subpoena for classified records. Here he is speaking to Brett Baer yesterday. They said, can you give the documents back? And we were talking. And then they said they went to DOJ to subpoena you to get them Which back. they've never done before. Right. And and but why finished? not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. Yeah, but I've according very, to the indictment, you then tell this aide to move to other locations after telling your lawyers to say you'd fully complied with the subpoena when you hadn't. But before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things, uh, golf shirts, clothing, pants, shoes. There were many things. Oh, I would say much, plans? much more. Not that I know of. So he says he didn't know of the Iran war plan in those boxes, but his golf shirts were there, as well as potentially some other records that he wanted to go through. Uh, That is something that could potentially be used in court as the Justice Department tries this case. And there is a real question here is, is this actually going to be what Donald Trump's defense argument will be? Or is he just trying uh, to put part of his story out there right now? whenever there are um, people listening, the wider public. Jake? Hmm. Caitlin Plants, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Next, we're going to go live to the U.S. Coast Guard Command Center in Boston. What crews there are saying about the desperate mission to find the missing sub that was headed to the site of the sunken Titanic. 
Topping our world lead as of this hour, rescuers have not had any success in locating the missing submersible that seemingly vanished Sunday in the North Atlantic Ocean. And time sadly is running out. According to the U.S. Coast Guard, uh, earlier this day, there was less than 40 hours worth of oxygen left for the five people on that vessel. It might be about 40, uh, about 36 hours as of now. Those on board include the CEO and founder of Ocean Gate Expeditions, uh, a French submariner, uh, a British businessman, and a Pakistani businessman and his son. CNN's Jason Carroll is at the Coast Guard's command center in Boston. Jason, what, what challenges are the crews facing here? Well, the biggest challenge is the one that you mentioned, Jake, and that is time. Uh, time uh, before that oxygen runs out. We're talking now about less than 40 hours. And time to get some of that necessary equipment, more of it, to the area, that remote area of the North Atlantic, where it's going to be needed. Uh, the Coast Guard is saying that they are doing everything that they can. A number of emergency cruise vessels are headed towards the area. And in fact, today, Jake, they talked about a remote operating vehicle that's being used there out there today, attached with a camera to go beneath the surface of the water to see what it can see. But again, time is not on their side. Logistically speaking, it's hard to bring assets to bear. It takes time, it takes coordination. Um, and then we're dealing with, uh, you know, two pieces of, you're dealing with a surface search and a subsurface search. And frankly, that makes it an incredibly complex operation. And you heard him there talking, Jake, about a complex operation. The Coast Guard at one point was asked, they said, well, what does a deep sea rescue at this point look like to you? And he said that was not a question he could answer at this point. One former passenger who was on board uh, this deep sea uh, exploration uh, down to the Titanic Ocean Gate, this was about a year ago, uh, CNN spoke with him and uh, he said that he at this point is just hoping that the submersible has somehow risen to the surface and sitting there on the surface still waiting to be rescued. Jake? Jason, what kind of additional equipment or assets might be on the way to help the Coast Guard with the search? Well, we learned about that in addition to that as well. And the Navy, for example, announced that it's going to be bringing one of its salvage systems uh, into the area. This is a salvage system that's used to working in deep waters. And what it can do is it can lift in undersea objects that, that weigh as much as 60 thousand pounds. Again, this submersible only weighs about 23,000 uh, pounds in comparison. The Royal Canadian Navy, uh, one of its ships is en route and on board this particular ship, there's a mobile hyperbaric chamber that can uh, carry at six people. But in terms of arrival, when asked when that Royal Canadian ship is going to get there with that special hyperbaric chamber, we're talking 48 hours from now. Jake. All right, Jason Carroll in Boston. Thank you so much. Last summer, CBS reporter David Pogue toured this Titan vessel and interviewed OceanGate wow. founder Stockton Rush, who's now missing. Pogue noted even then a, a lack of sophisticated parts and devices, in his view, for some of the vessel's construction. It's also the only one with a toilet. Sort of. And yet I couldn't help noticing how many pieces of this sub seemed improvised. We can use these off-the-shelf components. I got these from uh, Camper World. We run the whole thing with this game controller. <laughs> Come on! It seems like this submersible has some elements of MacGyver-y jerry-riggedness. I mean, you're putting construction pipes as ballast. I don't know if I'd use that description of it. 
Let's bring in CNN's Gabe Cohen, who's also been on this submersible. Gabe, tell us what you saw. Yeah, so Jake, I did a story about Titan back in 2018 when I was a reporter in Seattle. Uh, First thing that struck me, of course, uh, was the size as we actually stepped into that vessel, just how cramped five passengers would be inside that chamber for more than eight hours. And then, uh, as you saw in that report, some of the components of the technology that felt uh, quite simple, somewhat rudimentary. The game controller, for example, that you saw there that actually operates the vessel. But look, OceanGate has touted its use of off-the-shelf components that really, they say, helped streamline construction of Titan and made it easier to operate. Uh, The company has said they did not cut any corners when it comes to actual safety, especially when it comes to the uh, carbon fiber shell that you can see that surrounds Titan. Uh, They worked on this vessel with NASA, with Boeing, and many other groups, they say, to create a safe vessel that they believe can dive 13,000 feet. Now, that said, Jake, we have learned that Titan has has lost communication with support crew in the past, unable to get messages from the surface, which they really rely on when they're underwater. They don't know where they're going because, uh, as you know, there's no GPS on board. You've you've also interviewed the OceanGate CEO. Um, Did he say anything to you about the, the safety of the Titan? Yeah, so I, I did. I, I interviewed Stockton Rush, who, who founded OceanGate uh, several times. He's also, uh, as we have confirmed, one of the people uh, missing inside the vessel. He is the pilot right now on board. Look, he, he described to me, he described their sub, uh, submersibles as armored vehicles. Those are the words he used. He said that they were, they were safe and they were tested, going places where, of course, no diver can go into uh, water with pressure that, that could crush other vessels. Um, I asked him, though, uh, repeatedly about safety during my different interviews uh, before different expeditions. And uh, I spoke to him right before they were going out to see another shipwreck, uh, the Andrea Doria. And he told me, quote, uh, everyone is getting back safe. We can take risks with equipment, but not with people. Jake. Mm. Gabe Cohen, thanks so much. Uh, I'm joining us now on the phone is David Mearns. He's a marine scientist and an expert in deep water search and rescue. David, thank you for joining us. So the U.S. Coast Guard has now acknowledged how challenging the search and rescue mission is, including noting that they don't have all the necessary equipment or or expertise uh, they need. Um, Are there any other options uh, for the Coast Guard any other strategies that they could be pursuing? Well, I think you're seeing it play out today in that there are several vessels, commercial vessels and research vessels that are on the way to the site. Some, uh, we hope and we believe, with the kind of deep water assets that could potentially find the missing submersible, if it's indeed on the seabed, uh, and make the recovery. If they do locate the submersible before the estimated oxygen levels in the vessel run out, what might the rescue effort look like? Is it possible to, to pull the vessel that could be about 13,000 feet deep in the ocean back to the surface? And how slowly would they need to do it so they don't cause any harm as the individuals go up several atmospheres? Well, this is a one atmosphere at sub, so we don't really have to worry about uh, okay. the pressure that people suffer when they're scuba diving, for instance, Uh, they can come out to the surface and walk out of that submarine without any ill effects. If it's a little bit of a rough ride to the surface, then so be it, as long as they're safe. 
But you have to remember, while this submarine is very big and heavy on the surface, in the water, it's not much more than neutrally buoyant. It'll only be slightly negative because that's the way it's designed. And if it's on the seabed with its ballast weights, it'll be slightly negative, and then it won't take much force for an ROV, for example, to attach a lift line to it and then slowly haul it to the surface. Once it gets up to the surface, any of these offshore vessels with a an offshore-capable crane that can lift that kind of weight will be able to get the men, get the sub on board and then take them out of the sub. Once they're to the surface, pretty much their safety will be assured, and that's the key thing. But in this instance, because it's a one-atmospheric sub, we don't have to worry about hyperbaric pressures or equalizing them in any way. We should note, um, David, that you're friends with two of the five individuals on board the vessel, the vessel uh, Hamish Harding and, and Paul-Henri Nargile. Um, on a personal level, um, what, what is going through your mind right now? Well, I, I, yes, I know both men, one socially, one professionally. Uh, they're friends. I consider them friends. We're in a very small, tight-knit community. And, and, and many people like me who know both of these guys are doing everything they can to support from afar this, uh, this search and rescue. And, and really, all day today or, and yesterday, even for the people I don't know, you know, hearing that a, a father and son were on board, ostensibly maybe to celebrate a Father's Day, it's just heartbreaking. And, uh, and, and a lot of my thoughts today were going out to, uh, to Hamish's children and, and his wife, who were all uh, very concerned. Uh, so that, that's, that's um, when I have the time to stop and think, that's, that's where my thoughts are. And, uh, and that's why everybody is working very hard to, uh, to try and help if we can. Yeah, it's uh, important for people to remember the, the human cost of this. Just uh, You're in this small community um, did they ever talk about the risks associated with, with such expeditions? Uh, yes, you know, they they know the risks very well. I mean, I can only talk about Hamish and P.H. And, 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 and listen, P.H. lives these risks. He has been in down in the sub many times deep. And uh, and as I say, he lives them. He, he can, he, nobody knows them better than he does. Um uh, and Hamish is not a man averse to danger and risks. But did they step onto that submarine inside on Sunday morning thinking that this was possible? And, and I, have, I have doubts about that. And, and I think, while this is not something we're worrying about today, but in the future, in the near future, whatever the outcome is, and hopefully these men come home, that... We need to conduct some sort of investigation into what happened. And, and, and we need to have a rethink about this type of activity at this depth of water in such remote locations when you're taking passengers to these deep locations, not professionals who live know, and know the risk like pH, but, but passengers. And, and really that's where... Um, I, I think my industry needs to do a bit of self-reflection in the weeks and months to come. David Mearns, thank you so much. And our, our thoughts and prayers, obviously, with your friends and the other passengers on the vessel. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Coming up, a woman...
Coming up, a woman in Utah accused of killing her husband, then writing a children's book about dealing with grief. The lawsuit that she's now filing in the wake of her husband's death, you won't believe it. Stay with us. Back with our Law and Justice lead, a Utah mom and author accused of killing her husband by lacing his cocktail with a deadly dose of fentanyl is now suing her husband's estate. After her husband's untimely demise, Corey Richens wrote a nationally respected children's book about dealing with grief, without mentioning, of course, her possible role in her husband's death. Now she's being held without bail on charges of criminal homicide and aggravated murder. Let's get right to CNN's Nick Watnick. It sounds like uh, Richens' late husband might have even anticipated something like this. You know, Jake, that is one of the most bizarre aspects of this entire bizarre case. Eric Richens had apparently told his family he thought his wife was trying to kill him, said she'd poisoned him before. Also, he tweaked his life insurance and estate planning, apparently to keep cash away from her. But a few hours before Eric died, Corey made him a cocktail that prosecutors suggest was laced with a fatal dose of fentanyl, and he took it and drank it. What is a lethal dose of fentanyl? Had been apparently a search on Corey's phone. That's according to investigators. Now to that other twist. Corey, the accused killer, is suing the estate of the dead husband she allegedly murdered. She wants a share of the proceeds from their family home, which is worth maybe a little less than $2 million. They married in the backyard of that house, raised their three kids there. Corey also wants a slice of the proceeds from the sale of Eric's masonry business. And that's another $2 million or so. Eric and Corey were married, so why isn't she entitled to that money anyway? Well, not long before he died, Eric Richens, according to paperwork filed with the court, installed his sister, not his wife, as the trustee of his estate if he were to die. Corey says they both paid for the house and a prenup protects her inheritance. Now, last week, a judge denied her bail, saying that if released, there might be an incentive for her to harm herself, family members or witnesses, and that there is, quote, substantial evidence against her. She is yet to enter a plea. She's due back in court Thursday. Jake. And Nick, are Richard's criminal charges mentioned in this civil case? Not that I can see. And also, I couldn't find any mention of the reasons that investigators say Eric Richens changed his will, changed his estate planning. They say he discovered his wife had taken out a home equity loan without him knowing, had taken money out of his bank accounts, had spent money on his credit cards. The actual details of this crime as well, also not mentioned, are pretty amazing. Now, prosecutors say that they have evidence Corey Richens was in touch with a known drug dealer that she bought fentanyl, that her husband died of a fentanyl overdose, found dead at the end of their bed early one morning. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. An American social media influencer with a huge reach to millions of young men is facing major new legal trouble overseas, the serious and disturbing charges against Andrew Tate. That's next. An online influence influencer largely known for his misogynistic rants has been officially indicted on charges of human trafficking, rape, and uh, criminal gang charges. Prosecutors say that Andrew Tate and his brother Tristan both lured women to Romania, then sexually exploited them and subjected them to physical violence. CNN's Melissa Bell joins us now to discuss. Melissa, walk us through these charges. 
So essentially what Romanian prosecutors are accusing the Tate brothers of is having used the lover boy method, luring these women in, then coercing them to produce pornographic content. It's a very high profile catch for Romania's anti-corruption uh, brigade. The charges specifically have to do with trafficking, rape and forming a gang to exploit women. Now, they've taken him into custody at the end of December, moved him into house arrest in March. This time, the charges. Our Romanian affiliates are saying there may be a hearing on Wednesday, but this could be a fairly lengthy trial. Still, Jake, in Romania, rape carries a sentence of 10 years, as does trafficking. He's also, he and his brother, facing another investigation that has to do this time with money laundering and other uh, allegations of child and adult trafficking. So he's looking potentially at a fairly long prison sentence and then further legal proceedings behind that, Jake. And Melissa, as mentioned, Andrew Tate, he, he was a controversial figure even before these criminal charges. That's right. You're talking about 6.9 million followers on Twitter for his fairly vile, misogynistic content. He refers to women as dogs, says they're partly responsible for their rapes. And yet, even though he's been banned on some social media platforms, very little has stopped him. In fact, the irony tonight, Jake, is that in 2017, when he moved to Romania, it was because it was a, car a country compared to the UK where rape charges are harder to have stick. And so the irony tonight is that, in fact, he may have underestimated Romania's judicial system, Jake. All right, Melissa Bell, thanks so much. Long overdue, the public honor for a 75-year-old man and why it took 60 years. But first, here's CNN's Alex Marquardt in for Wolf Blitzer with what's next in the Situation Room. Alex? Well, Jake, major questions about the status of this search for the submersible off the coast of the U.S. and Canada will be uh, digging into that. Uh, we will check in with our correspondents, including Orrin Lieberman over at the Pentagon, who will be, uh, will be asking about all the international and American resources that are being brought to bear. We'll also be speaking with a retired U.S. Naval deep sea diver who was also in charge of diving and salvage operations uh, for TWA Flight 800 uh, when it crashed. So lots more on that uh, search and rescue effort coming up in just a few moments, Jake. After more than 60 years, 60 years, a long overdue Eagle Scout ceremony was held in Washington state. 75-year-old Samuel Lynn Jones became an Eagle Scout at the age of 15, but at the time he was denied public recognition. According to his white scoutmaster at the time, because Jones did not come from a, quote, model African-American home, Jones was raised by a single mother in public housing. It wasn't until members of his church pushed him to work with their sponsored Boy Scout group that they learned of Jones's past with the Eagle Scouts and what he was denied. So on Monday night, the Vietnam veteran and retired Naval commander finally received his Eagle Scout medal with his daughter Akila by his side. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky, if you have an invite. I'm back on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcasts. all two hours just sitting there like a big filet mignon. Our coverage continues now with Alex Marquardt, who's in for Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.